All right, Connor, I have, well, we had an adventure getting here, but here we are. How are you today? I'm doing well, March. Thanks so much for the opportunity. It's been such a delight to speak with you. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I have been looking forward to this for, well, a solid month, maybe a little bit longer. Your book, not your book that you wrote, but the book you represent, has been floating around my house, getting passed from hand to hand and eyeball to eyeball. And um, I'm really, really, really happy to be able to talk about regeneration, ending the climate crisis in one generation which is technically written by Paul Hawken, but you are here talking with me. There's a reason why. So why don't you tell people who you are and a little bit about what you do? Yeah, well, we're, we're so grateful that uh, it's, it's uh, struck a chord and it's uh, been of interest and delight to you. That's uh, what's the main purpose with the book is they kind of open the uh, reader's uh, imagination and to invite them into the generative movement. So it sounds like you're mm-hmm. well on your way. And that's just so, so lovely to hear. Um, yeah. So a little bit of background on who I am and <laughs> how, how, why we're talking today. Uh, I'm Connor Jordan. I'm the chief of staff of Project Regeneration, the organization that helped Paul research and write the book. I was a thought partner and um, kind of the coordinator between the various uh, teams that uh, did a lot of the research underlying the book and uh, did fact checking and you know all the nuts and bolts that make a uh, a climate book uh, have a solid foundation to build off of. Um, what Paul likes to say is numbers are important, but they're the floor we dance on, right? Uh, mm. The 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 power is in the storytelling and in the the vision and the um, the language and the images, uh, but you. You can't you can't uh, do any of that creative weaving if you don't have the strong foundation of the numbers. Can you go ahead and explain a little bit about um, who Paul Hawken is, what his background is? Obviously, Drawdown, at least, um, has also come out. He may have work before that that I'm unaware of as well. So who's Paul Hawken and um, yeah. what's going on? Well, who is Paul Hawken? That's, I mean, it's a great question. Uh, he's done so much and has w- worn so many hats throughout his life. Um, mm-hmm. at, you know, I think the uh, how I see him is just the absolute beautiful mentor and visionary for um, the climate and the environmental movement. Um, but, you know, he's written eight books. Uh, he's started businesses, five New York Times bestsellers. Um, so he's really had, <laughs> he's worn many hats. He was involved in the civil rights movement back in the 60s. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, one of the stories that I'm uh, waiting to get fully from him was at one point he was kidnapped by the KKK. Um, oh my goodness. In Mississippi. Uh, so, you know, there's there's so much to his life and he's he's brought so much good into the world. Um, right. And uh, in, I think the, how people most know him is his work uh, in, um uh, probably Drawdown and now Regeneration, where uh, he, for uh, Drawdown, he embarked to be really the first to name the goal when it comes to the climate crisis, because right. up until that moment, you know, it was just, you know, let's mitigate, let's reverse. And these are verbs, <laughs> goals are nouns, right? Um, <laughs> I so, like that. So, you know, he's also an English major. So, the, the, you know, a wizard with words. Um, and so that's where uh he discovered, rediscovered, I guess, the term drawdown has been a scientific term for it forever. And he decided mm. to use it as, as the kind of guiding light for that book. And then drawdown, uh, drawdown as the organization in the book started in 2013 was to map, measure, and model um, climate solutions based off of the cutting edge science at the time to really be the first bottoms up uh, 
uh, answer to the question, well, right. what can we do? And, you know, can we get there? <laughs> can we get to drawdown? Um, right. It turns out the answer is yes. Um, and I think the, the really interesting thing is that in writing drawdown, he always knew regeneration was going to be the sequel. And so, well, you know, why do, why do you start writing a, another book when you're writing one is I, I, the question I had. Um, and I think the perspective that he took is that at the time, you know, 2017, there wasn't really, there, weren't, there wasn't a path forward when it came to the climate conversation. Mm -hmm. um, science was impeccable. Um, we were in it, you know, it hasn't changed much over the past couple decades of, mm -hmm. you know, there's a very potentially uh, terrifying future ahead of us that we are uh, accelerating full steam ahead into that it uh, just a degenerative future of um, massive climate crisis and and you can keep weather. well you can keep throwing data upon data upon data upon data but eventually you get to the point where you know it's not you know you're no longer trying to figure out if you're in a boat in the doldrums of the atlantic ocean eventually the water supply is running out and you actually need to figure out how are we going to actually take an action like you say move from a noun to a verb you know and and what are we going to do you know, it's yeah, like, hey, you don't and, need people every morning getting up saying, yep, still in the doldrums, still in the doldrums, still in the doldrums. <laughs> Eventually, mean, you got to actually do of, something. Yeah, the science is really good at triangulating where we are, how fast we're going, right? Like, you know, are we in the middle of the Atlantic? Are we at the beginning? You know, um, but there wasn't to kind of play overburden the metaphor at that point we didn't know what rows what oars were right um, <laughs> no one had said okay solar what what's actually uh, the potential here you know mm -hmm. wind what's the and so that's what drawdown really tried to do is say like here are some tools in the toolbox and if mm -hmm. we implement them like hey we get there it's possible mm -hmm. but now there are 400 plus models and different pathways to you know get to 1.5 c which is the ipcc recommendation and so you know, models are great. They're so informative, but they're, they're not, they don't tend to engender action. Mm -hmm. um, well, because... I think you said during our pre-chat that drawdown, mm -hmm. and I, t I spoke with Crystal Chiselle about yeah. mm -hmm. Project Drawdown, and mm -hmm. I had the impression that um, Project Drawdown, while it was totally valuable for everyone, and, and folks, um, if you go to marchtwisdale.com, you can scroll down the homepage or on the blog, the podcast page, and you'll find Crystal Chiselle, and she's talking about Project Brilliant. Drawdown. So y'all can sort of catch up on that, which will give you more context if you still have questions at the end of this interview. Um, but what was interesting is I got two takeaways from that. One was that it was sort of like directed a bit towards policy people mm -hmm. you know it was totally. like okay for those of you who are sitting around saying i'm in a position to create policy i've got a lot of data but i don't really know what to do it might have been helpful for that cohort of people and mm -hmm. but i'm like you know maybe someone else is really into women's liberation well drawdown was pointing out that actually i think it was in the top three maybe even mm -hmm. the top one mm -hmm. if you can empower women we have the data to demonstrate that women who are empowered inherently live lives that are phenomenally healthier for the planet than when they're not empowered. So you could be like, I'm going to go out there and help women in Bangladesh. And that doesn't feel like it's helping the environment. But actually, I am doing both at the same time. 
Yeah. And there's, there's a lot to unpack here. So, um, you know, to help me try to try to structure the response here, yes, go for it. I'm just trying to there's frame one a section bit. that is, you know, the, the inspiration component. Mm-hmm. Um, there's one section that you touched on that is, uh, you know, uh, women's liberation and gender equality. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, there's one section on, uh, kind of the, 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 the purpose and the outcome of drawdown. And right. so I'm going to, I'm going to try to weave the, through all three here and we'll probably bounce around. But so okay. you're absolutely right. Right. The, the goal of drawdown was to expand the imagination and to say, you know, it is possible and here are things you can do to, you know, help us get there. Um, but the number one question Paul knew he was going to get in writing and mm-hmm. the one he certainly got is, you know, well, what do I do? Right. As you said, it's a it's a great book for a policymaker. It's a lot harder to engage with it necessarily as an individual and pull out, you know, when, for example, refrigerant management. How do I as an individual engage in refrigerant management? There's, you know, a smaller set of people that that's really important to um, and can be acted upon. But, right. for you know, refrigerant management doesn't light me up. <laughs> it's not it's not my uh, you know, it's not my joy and it doesn't, you know, I don't even know what it is. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So basically, um, the, the, the short version is that different gases have different warming potentials and, um, refrigerants are thousands and thousands of times, you know, stronger than carbon dioxide. Oh yeah. The the whole problem, all those refrigerators that people would throw away and then, or, you know, and you've got the, exactly. If you don't dispose of them properly, they leak. And then all of a sudden you're putting these really powerful greenhouse gases in the atmosphere. Some people, you know, get lit up in, in talking about refrigerants and we want those people into the problem. And a lot of it is for the average one of us is to make sure that we keep our refrigerators in good condition until it's time for them to go. And then we make sure they're disposed properly. And that's the extent we engage there. Right. But it comes down to that inspiration component and that mm-hmm. there was one talk Paul was giving to, you know, all, all these secretaries of various governments and only the environment and the climate folks were asking the questions and engaging. And he realized that when the folks in charge of housing and healthcare didn't mm-hmm. see the climate crisis as their problem. Got it. And that is wrong, right? Yeah, totally the, wrong. <laughs> the, the, the kind of the struggle of the climate movement in a lot of ways is that it's been siloed to the climate when mm-hmm. you can't separate to the biosphere from the atmosphere, from the human sphere. These right. are three systems that are just interwoven and interlinked. And so, you know, kind of circling back to uh, gender equality and no one's going to save the world, right? Mm-hmm. We can't. The world's too big. It's too complicated. But we can make the world a better place. And in doing that, that will improve the atmosphere, the biosphere, the human, you know, the social sphere. And that's how we regenerate. Mm. And that's how we resolve the climate crisis. And so, you know, the tangible, one of the ways this is kind of, uh, you know, to put, uh, put an example here is that actually, if you, if you ask Paul now, one of his regrets in some ways was uh, quantifying the uh, climate potential or, or estimating the climate potential of uh, women's education and family planning. And mm. there's a lot of ways in which it's, you know, that was a really powerful exercise because it put that, it opened the conversation to the one we're having where, you know, wow, improving human life 
and the human experience is a climate solution. And absolutely it is, right? Um, the healthcare industry would consume less resources if we were healthier people. And, you know, so that kind of goes to food. And then if we improve right. the food system and reduce the, what, 70% of diseases, at least in the develop, developed world are inflammatory, I believe. And so mm -hmm. that comes down to a lot of diet and exercise and how, you know, we live our day-to-day -day lives. Reducing that reduces, you know, if we go from the pure climate lens, reduces emissions. And then, but also improves, you know, the human condition in an immeasurable way. And well, so if you yeah, look at exactly. Mm -hmm. It's all in there. It's like, um, you know, when you mentioned the medical people, the first thought I had was, you know, all the dumping of medical supplies that is done in, in a lot of countries, just sort of like dump it off a ship into the ocean. And you've got hypodermic needles and plastic garbage out there that the animals are swallowing and they're dying from, you know, and, and it's sort of like, you know, I have this thing that I've tried to get across to people a lot when I run into people, well, my life, I'm 48, I've met a lot of people who would completely deny that climate change is happening or they would deny that climate change is being affected by human behavior. And um, when I realized I'd met with a person who simply wasn't going to change that viewpoint, I would just you know, I would just, um, what's the word for it? I would pivot and go, okay, well, that's cool. You know, you might be right. I mean, especially, you know, if you have like a real solid biblical viewpoint or something and you think we've only been here 6,000 years and God's got a plan, okay, maybe you're right. But I would pivot and be like, let's say climate change isn't happening at all or it's not affected by humans. Humans are still affecting all this other stuff in the environment. You know, if you go to the beach and, you know, step on garbage or you go to the lake and you're trying to go fishing and you can't because the pollution from a plant is wiping out the fishery. There's a lot of other things that you could get on board with. You could even say climate change is not my issue, but I want a better planet to live in. And I would just try to find a way to pivot to that conversation because functionally, when I die, will I have left a positive or negative or neutral impact on the planet is sort of a question worth asking. Yeah. I mean, you, one of the things that I think is we've done really well in regeneration is that when you read the book, if you pretend the climate crisis doesn't exist, you'll still want to do everything in there anyway. Mm -hmm. It just makes a better world. And so if, if we're in the climate silo here in that perspective, there's no difference between a climate denier and someone who doesn't do anything on the climate, right? Mm -hmm. um, it's, so at this point, it's about action. But you know, a climate denier that is, you know, improving their community and taking care of the hungry and, you, you know, tending the park is doing incredible work for the climate. We just don't have to call it that. It's the actions that, that matter here. And so whatever language folks need to hear, it's important for them to hear because at the end of the day, regeneration is about putting life at the center of every action and decision and creating more life, creating the conditions to create more life, because that's what we do in our bodies every minute, every day, every second, just cells are regenerating and creating and taking that, you know, the inherent mandate of nature to regenerate and to grow and to right. enliven and to support and facilitate that. That's fundamentally the thesis of the book is that's how we end climate crisis. We create more life from mm -hmm. a numbers standpoint. Right. If, you know, we've degraded our land and uh, our soils by such an extreme since the Industrial Revolution. But if we improve the, so the carbon in our biomass and soils and around the world by 9%, we've sequestered all emissions that we've 
emitted since the Industrial Revolution. Nine percent. Um, we can talk a little bit about more about this in a minute, but um, sort of the the unintended consequence of um, the fear campaign. And I definitely mm -hmm. want to get into that. You know, you're not a, an immoral person if you just shove your head in the sand and, and cover your eyes and your nose and your mouth and your ears and don't want to hear anything. You're not immoral. You're actually sometimes responding in a very uh, species typical way. So on page um, 79, there's this beautiful picture. It's from up in the sky and it's um, above sort of the, you know, think of a seven layer forest and these are the, the highest trees. And it says here, an entirely different ecosystem has emerged from ending the intensive industrial farming and dairy practices at the Nep estate. Without any farming at all, it now produces 75 live, live weight tons of organic, wild pasture fed, free roaming meat every year. Rewilding has resulted in huge gains in terms of soil restoration, carbon sequest. Oh, how do you say that word? Sequestration. Yeah. How do you say mm -hmm. it? Sequestration. Sequestration, water storage and water purification, flood mitigation, air purification, and habitat for rare species and other wildlife, including pollinating insects, a space for nature contributing to human health and enjoyment. But I really liked this because it was a reminder that we sometimes think if humans go out there and work really, really hard, bang, 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 boom, 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 do a bunch of stuff, they're going to force that 25 acres of land to produce more food and resources than it would have produced if the humans had just wandered around and eaten what was readily available. And I think what we're starting to discover is that there's a lot of places where humans go and they work really, really hard. And the end result is a minuscule amount of resources compared to what they would have gotten if they had either left it alone or allowed it to recover. Is that pretty much sort of like a theme you would say that runs through the book? Um, yes and no. I think there's there's this interesting insight that the, you know, part, let's let's take agriculture as an example here. Yeah. Um Industrial agriculture is we're not we're we're not really growing food, we're growing plants, right? Right. Um, and these because we're just dumping all of this resource into growing a plant, we're decimating the microbiome, the soil, the food's less nutritious, it's susceptible to disease, it's, you know, it's cre we've somehow created a system where it's cheaper to eat a, you know, a sugary derivative of corn than it is to eat a fresh, you know, whatever, um, mm -hmm. a vegetable, uh, you know, wh whatever it is. And this system is just, it, it does not work. We're seeing the recreation of the dust bowl and, and just soils disappearing, topsoil waters running off. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, farmers are really struggling and they're changing things, not because necessarily because they, you know, believe in soil sequestration. P farmers aren't switching to what uh, is commonly called regenerative agriculture or agroecology because of some climate benefit. It's because they get better yields, right. they get more money. They, right. And so, you know, if you look in history, I think if you go to, uh, there were soy samples taken in Tennessee or Kentucky, I forget which, exactly what state, but you go and around 3000 years, uh, I think it was 3000 years ago, um, there was a massive change in the pollen that you know is is buried underground and the you can see the indigenous uh groups and peoples came to that area was you know a dense kind of thicket of not producing food and they created 
this beautiful ecosystem that mm. would produce a massive amount of food is in you know and is self-sustaining and have tended and stewarded it right. and so it's not that human intervention is a bad thing or necessarily creates worse yields than allowing nature to do its work but there's this symbi work we're a keystone species as humans mm -hmm. we're a keystone species we can create better conditions for life in whatever ecosystem we go in. we're engineers mm -hmm. we build like the beaver the beaver is a keystone species oh that's By building a great the point dam, yeah it creates that space for the pond and you know all it all of this cascade of benefits we do that too mm -hmm. indigenous people have been doing that for tens of thousands if not longer of years and so there is the regenerative perspective is to live up to that potential mm -hmm. as creators and life keepers and stewards um so we have a lot to learn from our indigenous brothers and sisters and a lot to you know pay back for the damage we've caused and to the absolute tr suffering that they've been put through and mm -hmm. um and you know they're in many ways our um our indigenous our indigenous family here is are, are the you know the the vanguard of the regenerative movement um right a recent report came out saying that they prevented 25 percent of annual emissions in the united states and canada by their protesting work on uh against pipelines and they indigenous people steward 85 percent of the biodiversity hotspots that mm. remain in the world right um the right. knowledge and wisdom that they've gathered through observational science for millennia is uh, currently unparalleled by our in, in terms of a systemic uh, systems understanding of their ecosystem mm -hmm. than uh, than Western science has. And it's the the kind of the merging of the two that's creating these really um, productive food systems from an agroecological perspective that's allowing um, regions to become uh, food sovereign and, uh, you know, <laughs> overcome malnutrition and many of the, the, the series of diseases that we see haunt the, the modern world. I don't want to call them hard questions, but they're yeah. they're the questions that I feel um, arise in a person that makes them maybe start to feel hesitant or overwhelmed. A more effective and harmonious conversation with our fellow people about these types of topics so that we do not, in our desire to... Um, force other people to do what we think should be done end up actually making the problem worse because we shove people so far into a corner that they may not be able to crawl back out of, um, Absolutely. you know, making it harder to achieve the goal they want. Mm. So one thing that comes up for me is, and I am sure that Paul Hawken and you and Crystal and everyone else involved in these two book projects in particular is, has probably grappled with. So I'm sure you have some great ideas for us is, what do we do about the reality that there's a lot going on and avoid the overwhelm so a person can remain emotionally healthier, happier, mm -hmm. and be effective? Yeah, it's an important question. And I think there, there are two places to start. Um, the first being, uh, you know, great work out of uh, Stanford Neuroscience has taught us that action or that beliefs don't change actions actions change beliefs. Ah. So if you are in a, if you are, you know, believe that you can resolve the climate crisis, but you're not 
engaging and you're not acting, you're going to get overwhelmed because it just keeps piling and the, the evidence is uh, in contrary to your belief. Mm-hmm. Um, but in, upon acting, you're going to realize that how quickly uh, things can change and the cascade of um, the cascade of actions and the community you form and um, you'll start seeing change through action. And that's what it all comes down to. It comes is action. The regeneration is, is an invitation to begin a journey. It's not the, the Bible that will take you to, uh, you know, uh, some foretold state with the exact steps in between. It's an invitation mm-hmm. to start to find your, what lights you up and to begin there. And it's a, if you go to the website as well, it, uh, regeneration kind of uh, is a wormhole into Nexus and Nexus is something we're building right now but we're planning to develop the what you can do and how to do a compendium for every solution and challenge related to climate crisis whether it's the clothing industry the politics industry proforestation deforestation azola Mm -hmm. you know anything in between we're we're trying to uh, gather the solutions through research and through user input um so that folks can figure out what they can do, how they can do it and get started really quickly. Cause that's, I think also a part of this overwhelm is, you know, when you think about, for example, um, electrify everything and we want to you know, electrify mm. every appliance and device and part of your home and building, that's an overwhelming place to start, even though it's a sliver of the conversation. Right. Mm-hmm. But if you, you know, there, if you go to the website now and you look at, for example, regenerative agriculture, you can see things you as an individual can do. Okay, but wait a minute, like on the electricity piece, doesn't it depend on where you live? If the electricity available to you by your local um, utility company is being generated in a way that's actually part of the problem, you know, like for for our home, for example, where we live here on the island, we inherited a home when we bought it that had um, an oil furnace downstairs. And so, you know, there was a company on the island, they would like come fill this big thing with oil. And I'm like, you know, I don't want to be consuming oil that's million-year-old sunlight from the other side of the planet. So we replace that with a wood-burning stove because we happen to live on an island where trees are coming down every time there's a storm. We've, you know, and and so it's like, well, those trees are going to degrade over about 50 or 100 years, release their carbon. So that seemed to me to be healthier. But electricity, I had concerns about PG&E, you know, where they still getting some from coal burning plants, you know, what about the Snake River Dam? You know, I mean, you sit there and look at all this. So, you know, we got solar panels and put them on the house. But, you know, it's like every time I make one of these decisions, I'm sitting there and I feel like nothing is just a simple decision. Everything has to take just a little bit of thought given situations. So when you mentioned everything going electrical, you know, that brought up for me immediately, you've got the people who say, hey, if we had gone with nuclear energy and generated a lot of electricity, we would have avoided burning a lot of fossil fuels. Then the other person says, but we'd have all the nuclear waste. And da 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 So just stop for a second on going electrical. Is that necessarily a good option for everyone? Or should they figure out how their electrical company generates that electricity first and then decide whether to dodge it temporarily? What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean it's it's a great question, and I think the, the 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 two quick answers here are one, electricity will have to be produced in a renew in a you know renewable way. There's just no future where we can't do that. So mm-hmm. these the, the you know the companies will 
be forced to shift. And we're also going to create decentralized energy systems mm-hmm. with as solar panels get more on rooftops and in communities and storage becomes widely available. The energy system, energy system is going to transform. Okay. It, it fundamentally. Um, and we're all going to be a part of that. Um, and so that's just going to be really to, interesting. So shifting um, to electrical in your home means you're now creating more demand and then that's going to going to sort of have a ripple effect upward that will encourage the utility company. In some ways, the biggest reason why it's going to change is it's cheaper. It, mm. Wind and solar are the cheapest form of energy, period, right? <laughs> it's cheaper than coal, cheaper than natural gas, cheap, way cheaper than nuclear. There's just it, Economically, it makes no sense. That's the basis for the energy transition. And then obviously, then you all the externalities added in as well. It just, you know, there's there's just no, it, the energy system is going to change. Um, well, and- I think there's education needed in that. For example, right now, the common person who's not as deeply involved in this as you are and other people in your field is hearing the messages of, okay, so we're going to invest a bunch into solar panels and they're going up in different places. I mean, I go down to California and Arizona, so there's giant solar arrays on the way to my dad's house. There's a massive um, wind generating farm on the way to my uncle's house, you know? And so my uncle is like, I'm really concerned because the bunch of birds are getting killed by the wind turbines. And so what did California more birds do? birds are being killed by fossil fuels. <laughs> Way more. Maybe so. But for him, he's sitting there. He's like, California went ahead and, and said, okay, well, even though the golden eagles and these animals that are endangered are being killed, it's valuable enough that we're going to just sort of give them a pass. And so he's stuck on that. And when he brings it up, I'm like, I don't really know how to respond to that. And then I have other people who say, well, how long do the solar panels last or being created, you know, using the fossil fuel power we have now? What happens later when they crack and they break? We have to replace them. And I just say, I don't have the science. I don't know. I have no clue. So yeah. I think in a way, but one of the things we're missing to find is, out, right? Well, but one of the things we're missing is technological knowledge in our society. We've got what, 50% of the people in our country are probably over the age of 45 you know, they got out of college like I did 25 years or high school 25 years ago. We have a massive number of voters and people who are currently in elected positions of power who are going off of information that they gained in the 60s and the 70s. How are we upgrading our scientific understanding of these things? Because people, once they get an idea in their head, it's there to replace it with new information. That has to happen and it takes effort. What's going on around that, you think? Yeah, I mean, I think there are many ways that there are many things that are going on. The media is real starting to transform in a really delightful way, being led by some remarkable environmentalists and other kind of leaders in the space. Um, you know, our website, regeneration.org, has a wealth of information that will be useful. Um, we're partnering with Climate Action Systems to develop a tool to kind of help accelerate learning in, within communities. We call them learning pods, but it'll be localized Um uh, a localized tool to help engender action. But I think it really comes down to one of the points you were saying earlier in that, uh, particularly in America, um, but also in many places around the world, are the politics industry, because it really is an industry, mm-hmm. has designed a system to perpetuate itself by dehumanizing the other and pushing us away from each other. Mm. And to the point where we need to be, we feel like we need to be right rather than curious. Oh, yes. And so 
the there are many things one can do to start um you know uh dismantling the <laughs> for lack of a better word the politics industry but the with the core of the 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 I think the core thing to think about here is questions are great. They're fundamentally, because it means someone's curious and they want to mm-hmm. learn. And that's the opportunity. That's the gift, right? right? When someone asks you, you know, what what happens to a solar panel after, you know, it's recommended lifespan? Mm-hmm. Let's find out. Let's do our research. Let's, you know, let's explore what it you know, you'll find, you'll soon find that there are recycling, it's much, you know, there are recycling programs that are, you know, some, the technology is improving. There's some still underway. You'll find that at the end of their lifespan, they are still able to do, most of them are still able to, um, you know, still create electricity, just not quite as efficient for an American consumer, but there are many others throughout the world that would still like that panel. And so there are programs to take used panels and to install them in places where they'd be useful. Mm-hmm. Um, there you know, they're wind turbine blades right now, many of them are being buried. There are great efforts to um, to recycle them and to reuse them and to design new ones. But you, are, do you want to be a part of that solution? Do you mm-hmm. want to help figure that out? Is that something that makes, you know, are you an engineer that and that challenge lights you up? The questions are the opportunity and that curiosity, that discovery um, is really at the heart of how we reconnect, right? Because you know, we, as you said, we can, we can spend all day trying to debate the nuts and bolts of, you know, oh, this shirt might have a footprint of this, and this shirt might have a footprint of this, and uh, I don't know, and, you know, mm-hmm. maybe you don't like the word climate, or, but we can all sit down and say, hey, wouldn't it be great to have fish in our rivers? Wouldn't it be great to have coastlines that aren't covered in plastic? Mm-hmm. Wouldn't it be great to have air we can breathe? How can we do those things? Right. And we can all come around those answers like that right um because at the end of the day the math the like the math to some degree will solve itself you know you know it's weird to say and given how much focus there is on it but when when we start acting in community and we start um you know exploring what lights us up and engaging in regenerative activity, then the numbers will resolve. It'll figure itself out. And so in in a lot of ways, you don't have to worry about saving the planet because Mm -hmm. it's impossible. You will never save the planet. You are one person. There are 8 billion people. There are trillions of creatures. The planet is so, it's, it's not, it's also not your responsibility. Right. Right. But it's about you, as you said, you know, the the improvements and the, what you can give and create in your space. And you know, um, I'm half Japanese, so the concept of ikigai really resonates with me, which is finding the intersection of, you know, a purpose and meaning and work and joy. Um, mm. And, you know, that's that's the calling in many ways, uh, kind of, you know, your son wants to focus on trees and proforestation and protection and preservation. Great. Like, absolutely. If he loves trees, let's find a way to you know, let's, let's help him find a way to help, help our trees, right? There, right. there's so many ways we can all get involved with so many things that light us up and so many conversations to have. It's, um, we're all, you know, th- there, th- I don't think there's a single person that wants to be like, you know what, I love having 
our oceans filled with plastic and consuming what a credit card of plastic a year or a week. I know they're competing studies. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I love having my, you know, I love having air I can't breathe, you know, because the fires are so bad or right. Um, right. the fact that there's a power, you know, a coal burning power plant in my neighborhood or the fact right. that my power is Right, no one actually reliable. wants the bad stuff. And it's, no. you know, in a way, I wrote this down earlier during our um, pre-chat, which was, you know, in a way... It's not so much that regeneration offers like a a concrete model of do this, do this, you know, blah, blah, blah. It's in a way, it's sort of inviting people to have a shift in their philosophical um, relationship or their relationship with the world based upon uh, functionally what is their philosophy. I mean, I think we... We are still um, at this place where people are, are don't quite understand the similarities between a person's philosophy of life and what could be maybe a person's religion. It's been very interesting um, watching how um, if, if you belong to a church that is an organized power down structure and, you know, then you're seen as you have a belief system but if you're just a human being and you have drawn from so many different places in the world and you have your personal life philosophy, people are like, oh, well, that's just that's just you and your opinion. It's like actually a person's philosophy is like the root of what they do every day when they get up out of bed in the morning. It's, yeah, it's purpose. Huge. And I mean, yeah. the, I think the thing that's really interesting about regeneration and you know the idea of putting life at the center of every action, every decision, that's in every spiritual faith, that's in every religion. Um, it underlines every ethical code, right? It's it's a universal human trait, mm-hmm. right? Where <laughs> the humans are, we've evolved to care for each other, and mm-hmm. um, and so it's you know it's not this isn't regeneration isn't foreign to anyone, right? right. <laughs> we're not talking about something novel here, uh, but we're it, it's a journey, right? Uh-huh. You don't. Well, people do this no all the time. No one's like, I regenerated, right? Yeah, but people do this all the time. Not only do we do it every second we're alive, constantly regenerating our body, you know, but it's like, you know, people buy a house. They're like, oh, I'm going to restore this house. And I yeah, think and um, we've lost track of our power. Yeah. And I think the the other thing that's really important here is to remember that there's no such thing as an individual. And you might, this is, this. you might be thinking like, Connor, what the heck you were just talking about what individuals can do? Like what, right. what's going on here? Um, individual is, an individual is composed of a multitude of networks, right? No human being is an isolated island on, right. on the sea with, you know, no connections. We're all parts of something. And so whether that's, you know, the business you work at, maybe, you know, um, even Joe Biden's an individual, right? There's no individual that's the united states government that we can Mm -hmm. convince to change its behavior or amazon right like there are people Mm -hmm. making and implementing these decisions and they have power you might be friends with them and can influence them you might not be and can still influence them you might you certainly have influence in your neighborhood and your community you're a part of your improv group or your you know uh book club and Mm -hmm. these are all these communities come together into the beautiful, unique tapestry that is what we call an individual. And and when you think about what you can do as a member of multitudes, Mm -hmm. um, 
that really expands what's possible, right? Because um, then it's not just uh, you and your little silo trying to solve the world, but you and your communities trying to be better. And that's a real, that's another kind of fundamental shift I think regeneration is offering us to, to consider. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Regenerate our community and our sense of self within it. Yeah. It's, um, it's one of those things where, you know, when you look at the climate crisis, as, as we said, there are over 400 models of how we, how we stay within 1.5C solution. There's no one way to do this. We're all going to learn together. We're all going to do together. So for some people who are just sitting there and they're like, okay, all this sounds really great. I've got my rent due at the end of the month. You know, yeah. I have to be able to, maybe I'm a young person and I've got friends that are, you know, 10 years older than me. And they're telling me that, you know, back in 2008 in particular, a lot of people, you know, dropped out of college or after college, they went home and lived with mom and dad because they couldn't get jobs. Mm -hmm. And so um, the there's a website presence you guys have created is that what can you say to the young person who's like, I'm all on board. I'd love to spend the rest of my life, be a parent raising kids and say, hey, I'm going to work and look at me. I'm helping this way and I'm helping that way. But they need to have enough um, compensation for their love, passion, energy, and time to be able to meet their their needs and the needs of their partners and children. So um, what can you speak to on that issue? Yeah, I mean, I think the 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 thing that that helps here is it's not that's not a that's not an or right right regeneration is taking care of your family right that's that's part of who you are that mm -hmm. you know if you're <laughs> if you're working multiple jobs makes ends meet to care for your family great you know <laughs> uh the, the, you do what you can with the space that you can for the people you can and for the place that you're in right, right? it's it's not we're not all saying all right like we're all going to quit our jobs and become activists and only work in these select companies that are on mm -hmm. this list. And, you know, that, no, that, that, that's ridiculous. Right. But, you know, there's, there's decisions you make every day, no matter your level of power and agency, because you are a human with a voice and with a family and a presence. And there are many things we can all do, whether it's how we approach um, you know, our clothes or um, how we approach our food. And these things cascade. And the, uh, the beauty of the solutions, you know, offered in regeneration is that they involve changing systems. And when systems start to change, things start happening, the more that it, it's an accelerating process, it's not linear. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, localized food is cheaper than industrial. Once that system starts moving, energy gets much cheaper. Once we start moving toward more the kind of energy system of the future, electrifying products use less energy. They're more efficient. So there's less primary energy needed. You save money that accelerates, um, you know, so like someone who worked mm -hmm. for Microsoft at some point at, at, at some point, who knows how many years, decades ago said, Hey, you know, we got a bunch of people here on the campus and they're all sort of like, you know, bringing their lunch and they're buying things out of these mach you know, machines that give out soda pop or whatever. And, you know, they're just throwing all the stuff in the trash, but we should have a recycling program here at Microsoft on the campus because a lot of the stuff is recyclable. Someone, some 
human being had to have that thought. And then they went somewhere within Microsoft's power structure and said, hey, here's my thought. And it went through a few other brains. And eventually someone was like, oh, okay. And they went ahead and were like, all right, let's do this. So I'm pretty sure if you go to Microsoft right now and you walk around the campus and you walk into a cafeteria or down through an office or whatever, you're probably going to find, you know, trash cans next to a blue recycling can. And there might be two recycling cans, one for paper and one for cans and bottles. So even though that's, you know, now someone walks in and they're like, oh, of course we do recycling. But someone at some point had to have the idea and, and, you know, was given permission by the company to spend the time to put that into action. And now, you know, 30 years later, let's say it happened 30 years ago, 20, whatever, you've got 20 years of recycling that occurred because that person had that idea. So it's sort of like, where, however you choose to live your life, maybe you sell shoes, maybe you're a coach on a soccer team, whatever you're doing with your life, just have like an expanded awareness, a sense of I have value above and beyond, you know, just the, the, the rudimentary functionality of my job. I have this extra value of being sort of the, the community eyes and ears. Like I have the ability to notice something and say, Hey, why don't we do that? That could be improved. You know, it could be as like, take the soccer person. It could be like, Hey, I want to call the park district and ask them, you know, what type of chemicals are you using when you fertilize and, you know, and, and deal Mm -hmm. with, you know, herbicides on the fields because I've got, you know, moms who are bringing their newborns and their crawling babies and they're sitting out there watching while their kids do practice three times a week, you know, licking on things that could potentially harm the child. So I want to know what you're using. And then I want to have a conversation about whether there's some options that might be healthier. Like that might be the only thing you do that year. And maybe you just do it as a soccer coach. But if you pursue it and follow through and talk to people and, and ideas come together, there could be this result that now for the next 20, 30, 40 years that people are playing soccer on those fields, they're receiving less chemical injury, you know, to their, their body, less toxins, and it doesn't flow down into the nearby stream and yada, yada, because one person took the time to think about it and they raise their hand and say, hey, I have an idea and a question. Exactly. We, we use the term agency to encapsulate that. We, we're all, we all have agency. It, this book is about exactly that of okay. action and connection and agency and the, the attention you pay to the life you're in and the questions you ask and the steps you take. And mm-hmm. at the end of the day, that's how we resolve the climate crisis, whether it's, mm-hmm. you know, um, our government officials, the CEOs, or, you know, the retail workers or moms, or, you know, whoever it is, this, it is a unanimous thread that agency is, is the core here. I love Um, that. That's so mm -hmm. awesome. Yeah. I mean, I've, I've heard the word in other contexts and, and that's a great word for that. And you're absolutely right. And yeah, I mean, isn't that, that's not just make people, I don't know, I would love to hear from people who are listening to this this interview. You know, if you get this feeling of, I have this feeling that the, there's this constant sense of I'm not doing enough, I'm failing, things are falling apart, I'm powerless. And then when you stop and think, you know, maybe it's just once a year I'm going to ask a question, have an idea, and follow through on it. And maybe it only takes me like six weeks or a couple of months of just phone calls and a couple of meetings and chit-chat for something to happen. And then I, maybe I don't do anything for the rest of that year. But if like once a year I did something 
that resulted in a change that was then an ongoing change going forward, that means every year you're creating decades of change. Exactly. And you'll find, I think, also that, you know, once you start, it's, it's so much easier to keep going. You might, you might complete that one goal and you'll say, oh, this other thing came up. And that's mm-hmm. so interesting. That's so exciting. Um, we have this tool on the website called Punchlist. And you can go and see uh, people's, you know, climate to-do list, for lack of a better word. And I think you'll be surprised by the diversity that's there. You know, um, Paul has a friend who's an artist. And one of his punch lists was to go to refugee camps and teach children art. That's regenerative, mm-hmm. inherently regenerative, teaching art. Wow, what a gift. Um, does it, you know, and that's, you know, another one of my friends is, a, you know, committing to knocking on 200 doors every election season and just having a conversation about the candidates and, right. you know, the policies on the ballot and, uh, you know, just to, and that's, that's one of his, his, uh, you know, commitments. And when you take that perspective on, you know, what, what am I going to do as we get back to actions, change beliefs, Mm -hmm. and you, you find that the, I think, I think I, and I, I'm sure you're going to hear some really great stories of how action starts cascading into more action whether it's by the, by the, per, the, per, the listener or within their community. It's just, uh, this, is, this is how we change the system. Three point, it's, I think the, the current science is 3.5% is all we need to change, to cre- create a majority movement. You get that right, first 3.5%. Right, right, right. Yeah, yeah, right? yeah. Yeah, so- That's what, a small number. Oh, I know, I know. So, so we're running out of time. I want to focus for a second back on the book. So folks, this, mm-hmm. it's a big book. It looks almost- it it isn't, but it looks almost like you might have a reaction of, oh, it looks like a textbook or something, because it's not like all pretty picture on the front, and it, it, it's not been written to sort of like, you know, um, I don't know, be like a sold on beauty. It's just regeneration, ending the climate crisis in one generation. Now, to me, that was incredibly attractive, the message. But once you open it, what's amazing is that it literally reads like, not like a picture book for children, but more like one of those beautiful coffee table books that the National Geographic might have put out in the past where every page there's a photo that just blows your mind is super cool. But what's neat is that it's like, um, I think this could be really, really a great thing for parents with kids as well, because it's a whole bunch of these one or two page long essays. Think of it that way, almost. And I'm going to bring up one of them. It's called Rainmakers, because each one of these is chock full of a whole bunch of information that most of us probably don't know and have never even heard of or imagined. Or we thought of it, wondered, and maybe don't have the answer. So at the beginning of Rainmakers, it says, people can make rain, cool down the planet, rehydrate the land, and turn deserts green. It starts with imagination and microbes, not the ones in the soil, the ones up in the sky. Bacteria, rivers of it, falling on our heads as rain, hail, sleet, and snow. Then a couple paragraphs in, um, it says right here, where is it? A study of cloud water directly revealed 28,000 different species of bacteria. Now, what's funny about this is that just a couple days ago, my 20-year-old son and I were having a conversation about whether or not it was safe to drink rainwater. He was concerned that plastic that is in the oceans, micro pieces, 
were getting evaporated up into the rainwater and that when the rainwater came down, that or other pollutants would actually make it not healthy to drink. And we were having this conversation about what's in it. And all I said was, well, you know, that's totally possible. I think it forms also around little dust particles. Never in a million years did I realize that there could be 28,000 different species of bacteria in a cloud. So, you know, I was like, oh my gosh. So it goes on to explain about how the relationship with the plant life and how vibrant it is affects how much of those little particulate matters can go up into the air and then generate rain. But my invitation to everyone listening to this interview is that this thing is just so much fun to read and you can't read it super fast because you're going to be so stopped by amazement with each one of these little one or two, you know, two and a half page things. You're going to like want to go back and read it a couple more times. But imagine if you had your older elementary school kids and your middle schoolers and you're like, hey, let's pick one of these to read as a family each evening, you know, after dinner or before bed. So the thoughts are percolating through our mind while we're sleeping. And imagine if you know, over how many pages? Uh, 240. You know, over a year, you could literally read each one of these out loud with your family. And the education you would gain from this one book alone, and I think a sense of hope that children would have that the world is not doomed to failure, but we actually have massive opportunity and reason to hope and believe we can do better. This could be really, really awesome for a family or for an individual. It's so lovely for you to uh, to hear you say that because that's you know certainly the intent. Um, the our our goal here in many ways was to inspire awe and curiosity and joy, um, and because that's how you learn and that's how you do. Um, and there's something so the 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 message that you don't hear enough is that we have all of the tools and resources and technology we need to resolve the climate crisis today. Mm-hmm. That's a fact, mm-hmm. complete fact. Yeah, and that that basis alone expands what's possible. And the invitation within regeneration is to take the book with a sense of curiosity, awe, joy, wonder, and have it be the beginning a beginning of a journey. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think the 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 I think one of the things I'd love to leave folks with it's a we have a definition of regeneration and that's, as I said, to um, center life in every action and decision. But what that means is intensely personal. What does regeneration mean to you? Mm-hmm. And ref- I, I invite you know the listeners to reflect on that as they uh, you know, hopefully got something out of this interview or are interested in the book and mm-hmm. um, in their daily life, just to think, what does regeneration mean to me? And with that reflection, just follow your, follow what lights you up, follow what amazes you, follow what ignites your curiosity and your passion. And bit by bit, that's how we'll, we'll all succeed here. Um, yeah, absolutely. You know, live your best, most beautiful and amazing life and uh, keep on learning every day. And um, that's gonna, you know, be the, probably the best way to live your life. Yeah. And that's how we resolve the climate crisis in one generation, right. which, you know, it sounds so touchy feely, but you get a sense of the, the possibilities of, and the truth of that statement. Um, and I that, think it goes, yeah. I think it's important to say people have been saying for a while, we have all the technology we need. And the, the, the response to that, the depressed response to that will be, 
but we don't have the will. I think we do have the will. I think we have the will and we have the technology. What we don't have is necessarily the connection of those two things. This book is so brilliant in that it really helps you realize that not only do you have the will, but you also truly have an opportunity and you have the ability and the capacity. And then those people feel like I can, and then they're more likely to do. Uh, that, that's what, that was our goal with the book. And, you know, if I, the, the other element is to continue to check out the website as that'll help with the, um, help build the imagination on what the doing looks like. Just please keep learning, keep being curious, keep being inspired, keep chasing beauty. And it's, you'll find it amazing as to what you'll, you can accomplish so quickly. Connor Jordan, thank you so much for joining me today. And folks, if you've just joined us, you can catch the entire interview at marchtwisdale.com. You're going to be looking for Connor Jordan, and it's all based upon this amazing book called Regeneration. Thank you for joining me on the show. March, it's been an absolute pleasure. I'm so grateful for the time and energy. And, uh, you know, this is this is how we change, right? This is how we make progress is the conversations like this and then the actions that evolve. So really grateful for your attention and time and the, the work you're doing. Absolutely. One day at a time, we'll get there. Indeed. <laughs>